Hi, everyone, and welcome to Be True, my podcast about the writing I love and the writing I do. I promise I won't rhyme the whole time. I'm John Tessitorian today, marching past the flags from my little book. For a minute there, it seemed like something was happening. You can find it and all my work at johntessitori.com. I'm not going to lie, this is going to be a bit of a rough episode. It grapples with a tragic issue. Lucky episode number 13. For a minute there, as a whole, is a book about hope and mischances at the end of the last century, the collapse of the optimism of the late 1990s. It's always been a mournful, angry book wrapped up in a bright, shiny nostalgia of hip-hoppy rhythms and punky dance beats. But it's never seemed as angry to me as it does today, as the brutality that is at the root of contemporary life rears its head all around us in such graphic ways, at home and abroad. When I started the poem, I was interested in a kind of nostalgia, in revisiting lost youth, my life in the 90s, the 90s in New York City, a bright, shiny, newly restored capital of hope and progress, everything global and interactive and dot-com. What happened? The poem offers a few possible explanations, but in the course of writing, I started to ask even more critical questions, like, what was my optimism built on? Was it good for everyone? Who suffered? In other words, I became suspicious of my own nostalgia and started to worry about that overused term, privilege. If everything exacts a cost and everything has a price, who was footing the bill for my big 90s dreams? Now, I'm a poet when I write poems, not a historian or an economist, so what follows, the section called Marching Past the Flags, is a poetic confrontation with history, not straight history. It's a metaphor for the costs of what some of us are privileged enough to call progress, which is too often exploitation by another name. Marching Past the Flags, the colors and shapes of all the ancients now gathered along the highway, the concentration of history, the variety, and so much desert anger. Fury among the nearly but not quite forgotten, like a sandstorm on the horizon. We take their best stuff home. The procession itself is a profane gift of kingdoms on display, each in its own way an expression of survival, ingenuity, and also death, just now visible behind the pageantry of the silk and spice trade, and all the Gunga Dins who carry our water. But maybe that but elides so much tragedy. But maybe the benefits are also real. Maybe silicon circuits, high-speed cable, fiber optics really are a better deal. I don't know if progress is an illusion, but I remember the wall-mounted telephone. Remember the duck squawk modem. Remember a time when we didn't notice the death haunting our freedom. Desert anger. It is an axiom of my life and work that the attacks of September 11, 2001 effectively ended my youthful hope, the optimism of my country, and a wide range of opportunities I was raised to believe in. When I entered my true adulthood at the turn of the millennium, I suddenly found myself in a nation for which I was unprepared. When we locked the doors and went to war, we diminished our potential. 
especially the potential of the younger generations, me, for example. The old folks with all the power seemed to run for the hills, and they took their money with them. I am a historian by training, and I hate clichés. But that day, and the way my country responded in the next few years, put a nail in my coffin. War meant consolidation. It always does. And I knew it at that time. And I said so to anyone who would listen. But who's going to listen to a postdoc teaching Walt Whitman's poetry to college freshmen? That's the significance to me of the line, desert anger. It's a premonition and a predictable one. We should have seen it coming. It isn't hard to see. When we engage in colonial practices, imperial practices, when we take their best stuff home, we should be able to imagine their resentment, their disenchantment, and even their desperation. The signs, like my poem, were all there along the Silk Road, the trade route for silk and spice and maybe some oil, the source of so much wealth in the last thousand years, too often flowing in one direction, right into our pockets. We took their best stuff home. Every time I think of the Silk Road, I think of Yo-Yo Ma, the brilliant cellist who organized a series of beautiful performances and records that followed the historic trade route in music, one folk song and composition to the next, from China to Europe and back, through regions and musical styles about which I know little or nothing, all so wrenching and beautiful. And I think of how I met Yo-Yo Ma once, twice actually, but one time in particular, after a performance of Bach's cello suites. The concert was part of a work event, and I had a job that day to usher Yo-Yo from the stage, through the crowd, to the very exclusive VIP dinner at the back of the building. A meet-and-greet for big donors and people of influence, all of them, by the way, of a ripe vintage and increasingly hard of hearing. And Yo-Yo was wonderful. He smiled when I told him I would escort him. He thanked me. He shook my hand. And then he stood in the same spot for the next hour, shaking the hand of anyone who came to see him. It was a huge swarm of people. Nearly every attendee from the concert walked up, and he greeted everyone. Dinner be damned. Money be damned. Influence be damned. Yo-Yo Ma wasn't going to leave anyone hanging. My job was to move him along, so I gave him a few gentle nudges. But he stopped smiling at me at some point and started glaring. I'm not listening to you, his face said, and I won't listen to you. <laughs> then more smiles. On the other side of me, my crazy boss was yelling at me. Where is he? You're making us late. The food is cold. It was awful. But my God, did I love what he was doing. That is not how most important people operate. Not in my experience. And it's not how our culture operates. Our culture celebrates the haves, even though it's fueled by the have-nots. We take what we want, and then, with whatever's left of our attention, we hope, even pray, that what's good for us is good for everyone, even when we know it probably isn't. A former U.S. president whose name hurts to say the way it hurts to say Voldemort, once called this trickle-down economics. And it was his policy, explicitly. These days, it's mostly implicit. 
So my poem asks a tough American question. But maybe the benefits of progress are real? Question mark. But maybe they trickle down to everyone in the end? Question mark. And as the poem says, that but, but maybe, elides great tragedy. Only one important word is repeated in this poem beyond the ands and the buts, and that word is death. The deaths of others haunt our freedom. That's what's elided. That's what's hidden in the butt. And that's what we've been watching on our various screens this week and perhaps since 2001, and certainly even before that. We've been watching what happens when the beloved musician, let's call him Yo-Yo America, walks past his real fans, sits down with the powerful, and eats his dinner hot. His real fans don't like it, and they turn on him. I told you this would be a tough episode, but so be it. And so, in the hope that you, your family, and your friends are safe today, wherever you and they are, this is John Tessitore concluding another installment of Be True. If you've listened this long, thank you. You can find more about For a Minute There, It Seemed Like Something Was Happening, at johntessitore.com. But first, check out the work of the Silk Road Project. Find a recording of Yo-Yo Ma playing box cello suites, and imagine him grinning at all the money bags while their dinner gets cold. It was glorious. Special thanks to me for today's theme music, which I call C Chord. Maybe we'll talk again, and if you enjoyed this little podcast, leave some stars or a review and tell your friends. In the meantime, I gotta feed the dog all right, Luna, I'm coming.